Sunday evening Bible study. Starting this evening at 6 p.m., we'll be going through the book of James. Very excited for that. I encourage you and invite you all to come. Um, I think it'll be a good time of fellowship, of studying in that book, of prayer. And something else I would like to do with the Sunday night time uh, in the beginning is if there's any questions that you have from the message on Sunday morning or from the book of John, uh, from what we've talked about over these last few weeks, to also offer time to, to discuss any of those. Uh, certainly, I always want to be clear and anything I can do to, to be helpful in understanding our passages, I'm happy to do. Also, invite you to turn to John chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning. Also, I'd like to thank several people last week. Uh, we just spent our first full week here in Cisna Park. Several people uh, gave Carrie and I food. And I want to sincerely thank everyone who did that. I actually don't even know who everyone uh, was who, who gave us like groceries or baked us things. But for everyone who did, sincerely, I want to thank you for that. Uh, there's also pictures that are being taken. Um, and just want to encourage you to, to get those. I think that'll be so helpful for the directory to be able to put names to faces. And like, I th- like they said, if you have a picture or a caricature of yourself, you can just give that to them and they'll put it in there. And Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for your goodness. We thank you for this day. Lord, I pray for our time in your word today, that it would point us to you, point us to your truth, point us to the life that comes through Christ. Heavenly Father, I do want to continue to pray for the family of William Maul after his passing, and I pray for your nearness to them. Lord, the scripture says that you are near to the brokenhearted, and I pray that you would be with them in this time, and especially with his widow. Heavenly Father, I I want to thank you for answered prayers with Keith Knapp, and let us rejoice in that, and um, that someone even feels comfortable t- being taken off of the prayer chain, Lord. I just I thank you for the work that you've done in, in his life and in his body. Lord, I want to continue to pray for Bob and Ellie Nilsson, and especially for Bob as he goes into hospice, Lord, and... Pray for him. Pray for this time. Lord, I pray for just the people in this church and through the various desires that we have, Lord, for some finding a godly spouse, for some, I'm sure, finding a job or a new career, for others trying to sell a house, for others uh, situations with health, situations with family, situations with work. For all those things, Lord, I pray for your uh, blessings, and I pray that we just continue to trust in you and to have faith in you and to to walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen. As I mentioned, we're continuing in John chapter 2 this morning, verses 13 to 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. 
And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Imagine for just a moment that you're in the first century. You've traveled from a far-off region to make it to Jerusalem. You're at the temple. It's a bustling area. There are huge numbers of animals all around, oxen, sheep, doves. You hear the animals. You hear the bleeding of the sheep. You hear the moo of the oxen. You hear the cooing of the doves. You hear the sounds and smell the smells. Thousands of people have come from all over the Roman Empire. You're there to worship. You've come to the temple. Not a temple. The temple. It's not like now how there's churches all over the place. There's one temple. It's a link to history. You're standing in the land that God had promised. You're looking at the hills that David saw. And then you see a man who you've never seen before. You don't know who he is. Maybe you can't even hear his words. But you see this man... He's emphatic. And all the merchants who are around, he's driving them away. He has a whip, and he's driving their animals away. We're continuing our study this morning through the Gospel of John. Last week, we looked at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and the first sign that Jesus performed during his ministry, which was when he turned water into wine at a wedding feast. This week... We continue in the early scenes of his ministry, and we see a conflict in the temple in Jerusalem. And we're going to look at three scenes in this passage this morning. First scene, Jesus at the temple. And we'll begin going back to verse 13. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The opening of this passage ties, it, ties the story to a time of year. It's Passover. Passover is an annual Jewish holiday which celebrates the Jews being freed from Egyptian slavery at the beginning of the Exodus. It would also be at the time of Passover that Jesus was crucified. At this time, Passover was celebrated in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was and is a monumentally important city. 
It had been the capital city of God's promised land during the Israelite kingdom. And so Jesus goes to the temple. Throughout the Gospel of John, the Apostle makes several references to Jewish holidays. And he frequently references Passover. We see it here in chapter 2, as well as John mentioning Jesus partaking in Passover festivities in chapters 6 and 11. And what's happening is he's referring to different years in which the Passover was celebrated. John tells us in verse 14, In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. As I mentioned, Jewish people would have come from all over the region to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And part of the Passover was making animal sacrifices. The sacrifices had to be animals who were healthy, without blemish, without defect. However, if you were traveling from a great distance, tending to animals and keeping them unharmed and healthy as you journeyed, could be a pretty daunting task. So what many would actually do was buy the animal at the temple. So that's one group, people who are selling livestock. The text also refers to money changers at the temple. And what that's referring to is that when people would go to the temple and give money in the temple, they had to use the correct currency. And so what people needed to do was to exchange their currency from wherever they came from to the appropriate local currency for a fee, of course. And so you had people who were engaging in that business as well. So between people selling livestock and the money changers, the temple grounds had become an area of commerce at Passover. That's a problem. Verses 15 and 16. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So Jesus drives the merchants out of the temple. One thing that should be noted, we're here at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus and he's clearing out the temple. But if you're pretty familiar with the Gospels, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see Jesus clearing out the temple, cleansing the temple at the end of his ministry. In Mark and Luke, Jesus cleansing the temple actually precipitates the religious authorities seeking to have him crucified. At the end of the temple cleansing, Luke 19, it says, And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Why is the story found in two different times? Some biblical scholars have argued that John moved the story up because he's more concerned with themes than chronology and that he did that for theological reasons. I think there's a simpler solution. I believe that Jesus cleansed the temple on two different occasions. Jesus does it here in John 2 at the beginning of his ministry, then he does it a couple years later at the end of his ministry which is recorded in the other Gospels. If you can compare the story of John to the story that's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the things that Jesus says are different, the sins that he's exposing are different, I believe they're two different events. 
Once again, John's gospel ends by saying that Jesus did more than could have ever been written down. So it's certainly possible that this happened twice. To say that John just moved the story up, I think overlooks the fact that John actually seems pretty hyper-aware of time in his gospel, constantly making references to days, to holidays, to times of day. He seems very focused on dates and times. Back to our text. Jesus drives these people out, and he says, Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The merchants are in a sacred space, and they're commercializing it. And Jesus has righteous indignation at what they're doing. It's not that selling livestock or charging a fee to exchange currency, it's not that those are inherently bad things in themselves. But it's the misuse of the temple property that's an offense to Jesus. As a society, we often overlook the sacredness of life and of our institutions. Marriage is sacred, but nearly half of marriages in America end in divorce. Our world doesn't treat it as sacred, as set apart, as holy to the Lord. Life is sacred. But every year in America, almost a million babies are aborted. And when it comes to the end of life, more and more states are legalizing euthanasia. There are actually countries in Europe where euthanasia is already legal that are continuing, continuing to expand the parameters of what can be justified as euthanasia, including people who are young, who are able-bodied, who are healthy, who suffer from mental illnesses such as depression, opting to be euthanized. That's not meant to criticize people who are depressed and have mental illness, but rather it's meant to criticize society who would give justification and legal legitimacy to a person ending their own life. Life is sacred. The name of the Lord is sacred. The people throw that around. They curse by it. As the people of God, we must have reverence for God. It's one of the mistakes that sadly cultural Christianity often makes. Too often we make God someone we casually approach. When the reality is that we couldn't approach God at all, but for the work of Christ. We who were so unholy, so unworthy, that it took Jesus' death to make us worthy. May we not lose sight of the holiness of God because Jesus brings redemption. Let the work that he has done, the price that he has paid, the grace that he extends further deepen our appreciation and reverence for God's sacred character and righteousness. You can never have too high a view of the holiness of God. Jesus is at the temple, and they've turned it into a marketplace. While churches might not do that specific thing, sadly, there are still many things which churches in America do which totally undermine the sense of reverence which we should have 
for the bride of Christ. Churches often pander just to get people in the doors, but oftentimes at the expense of theology and teaching the word. I recently asked members in a Facebook theology group that I'm part of, what's the most gimmicky thing that you've ever seen a church do to try to get people in the doors? It's unbelievable. One church did a guns and Jesus study where they would come together for a short devotional and then go shooting. One church turned their sanctuary into a haunted house for Halloween. A pastor did an Advent series where every week he would wear a different costume, such as Frosty the Snowman or Buddy the Elf. One church spent a month doing a sermon series based on the Tim McGraw song, Live Like You Were Dying. There are pastors who have ridden into worship, into the building on motorcycles, on hoverboards, on segways. There are churches who do raffles and give out gift cards. Some churches have even raffled off cars. And the list goes on and on. None of these things would be inherently bad by itself. A grown man dressing as Frosted the Snowman is probably bad in any <laughs> circumstance. But it's that when you feel that preaching the gospel and teaching the word of God isn't enough and needs your own creativity, that there's a problem. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, When I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's not what we do here, obviously. But I give those examples because some of you might have grown children or grandchildren or great-grandchildren. But to encourage these people, people who we love, people in our lives, to encourage them to be going to good churches that are preaching the gospel and teaching the word of God. Because not all churches are good churches. Just because a building has the word church on it doesn't mean that they're preaching the gospel. And I think sometimes we fall into this trap of thinking, well, as long as they're going somewhere, that's all that matters. But to encourage people to go to places where the word is taught. We so often undermine the sacred. Our society is totally fine with that. Our society says to each their own, live and let live, follow your truth, whatever makes you happy, whatever floats your boat. All of that communicates a general apathy for the world around us. But as Christians, we are not called to be apathetic. No, we can't change what everyone thinks or does. But let us not fall into the trap of being apathetic to the things that are sacred. Let us not make common the things that are sacred. Verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. That's a phrase taken from Psalm 69, a psalm which was written by David. Psalm 69 is a lament of the injustices and difficulties of life, of following the Lord. If you're going through a tough time right now, I would read Psalm 69. Several verses in that psalm apply to Jesus and to the church. But in this place, in this passage, 
There's one verse in particular which the disciples remember. The tremendous zeal for the temple, for the house of God that Jesus has. Second scene, we see the response to Jesus. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, that's not an inherently absurd question. Jesus is driving people away from the temple, so they want to know how his actions are justified. Now, when they ask the question, what sign do you give to us? It seems like they expected some sort of grand miracle. Jesus does tell of a future sign that he'll perform. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus says the sign that he can do. Verse 20, the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? The religious authorities looked at how long it's taken to build the temple, and so it seems absurd that Jesus could possibly do it in three days. They missed the point. Here's something I learned this week. At the time of Jesus, the temple in Jerusalem was actually still under construction. I always thought, and you probably thought this too, that what they're saying is it took 46 years from start to finish to build the temple. Incorrect. A little bit of history. The Jewish people built the temple under the reign of Solomon. I knew that. That's the first temple. It was destroyed in 586 B.C. when Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians. About a century later, reconstruction of a second temple began. That temple was pretty modest. However, it saw a major renovation beginning around the year 19 or 20 B.C. In other words, the major renovation began 46 years before Jesus cleanses the temple in John 2. And so by the time of Jesus, they're saying the construction had been underway for 46 years. The actual construction wouldn't have been completed until AD 63, which was some 30 years after the time of Jesus, 30 plus years actually. I point that out because 46 years is a long time. But the actual renovation work took more like 80 years. And if it sounded absurd that something could be raised in three days, it's taken 46 years, imagine the perspective of looking at a temple that's not even fully complete and being told that it could be built in three days. Nevertheless, the authorities don't challenge Jesus' claim. They're not going to tear down the building. But Jesus isn't referring to the building anyway. John makes that explicitly clear in the next verse. Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus is the temple, and he's referring to his death and resurrection. Jesus died and rose on the third day. Last week, When we talked about Jesus turning water into wine, I brought up that part of the purpose for that sign was Jesus showing a replacement of the old with the new. Jesus was showing that he provides the better wine. 
the jars he used to turn water into wine, were the jars which were used for Jewish purification rituals. Jesus transcends and overshadows the old covenant. He brings the new wine, the new covenant. And in the same way, Jesus is the true temple, the greater temple, the new temple. I talked about this a few weeks ago. But the significance of the temple in the Bible is that the the temple is where we meet God. That's why the temple is so important in the Old Testament. And so when Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, yes, it's referring to his death and resurrection, but it's also pointing to Jesus as the greater temple. The temple was just a building. Merchants, salesmen could encroach upon the holiness of the temple. But in Jesus, we have an incorruptible temple, an incorruptible Savior through whom we are brought into the presence of the Lord. And we are again reminded of the death that Jesus died for sin. In chapter 1, we see Jesus called the Lamb of God, referring to his sacrificial death. In our passage from last week, we see Jesus pointing forward to his hour of crucifixion. This book is constantly pointing to his death. Eight full chapters in the Gospel of John are dedicated just to the final week of Jesus' life. Why so much about his death? Abraham Lincoln's two secretaries... John Hay and John Nicolay, after he died, wrote an expansive biography about the life of our 16th president. It's over 5,000 pages. And they talk about Lincoln's death on 20 pages. But in the Gospels, roughly a third to a half of the book is devoted to Jesus' death. Why? Because that is the only way to redemption. It is the only way to God. It is the only way to forgiveness. It is the only way to heaven. There's no other way than through the presence of God on earth who was torn down and raised back up three days later. Jesus, in our passage this morning, cleanses the temple. But in that, it points to himself as the temple that does not need to be cleansed. The temple was always meant to point to Jesus. Again, I touched on this a few weeks ago, but you have this major theme in the Bible of the temple. In the Old Testament, you have all of these exact specifications for the temple and its precursor, the tabernacle. You have dramatic Old Testament texts which talk of the presence of God filling the temple. You have Israel who continues to fall into sin and idolatry in spite of the warnings from God's prophets. Eventually, they're conquered. They're exiled. They lose the land. The temple is destroyed. They would later be freed from exile and given the command to rebuild the temple. All of that pointing to the true temple. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Man existed in the unmitigated presence of God, but humanity sinned. 
Paradise was lost. God gave the law through Moses. Humanity continued to sin and, continued, and God continued to be faithful. The temple was built and sin continued. The temple was lost. And in our passage this morning, on the grounds of the new temple, we again see sin and people who are dishonoring the sacred place of God. Left to our own devices, we'll continue to lose the temple, to squander God's grace because we're sinful. But instead of having a building which represents the presence of God, we're given a person, Jesus Christ the eternal God of creation, who himself becomes the temple. We are welcomed back into the garden because Jesus left heaven. We are welcomed into the presence of God because Jesus was forsaken. We are given grace which cannot be lost because it was bought by a Savior who does not fail, who does not sin. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus came to be with us so that we could be with him. <clears throat> Third scene. We see, we see some of the reaction to what Jesus is doing. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the, the signs that he was doing. John mentions that Jesus is doing other signs. He doesn't tell us specifically what those signs are. But people are taking notice. And the text says that people are believing in him based on his signs. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And he did no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Those last couple verses are a bit cryptic and peculiar. Jesus desires for people to believe in him, to trust in him, to know him. But he also desires for our faith to be authentic. Because there's no fooling an all-knowing God. He knows what's in man. He knows our hearts and where our faith is. Sure, some were drawn to the signs that Jesus was doing. And those things should impress us. But simply being impressed by something that Jesus says or does does not go far enough. You must believe in Jesus. You must trust in Jesus and the death that he died for sinners. What do you believe about Jesus? Where is your hope? Who is your savior? Do you still ultimately trust in your own goodness? That's hard to let go of. When you trust in Jesus... It is what he has done through which you are saved. It is through Jesus and nothing else. Jesus didn't entrust himself to the people in this passage, either because they were making empty commitments or empty conversions, not really believing in him. Jesus knows our hearts. Some people don't really believe in Jesus, but come to church every week and think that's enough. 
Some people don't really believe in Jesus, but they were baptized. And I think that's enough. But we have to have true faith in the Savior of the world. Not just going through the motions, but actually trusting in Jesus and what he has done. We need a conversion of the heart. What does that look like? Come next week. But for now, I leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 2. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, I do thank you for your Son and the love that he has for us. Lord, that it is by faith alone that we are brought to you, trusting in the death that Jesus died and the righteous life that he lived and the life that we are risen to because of him. Lord, may that be our eternal joy and delight and hope. And may we walk that out every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.